But um, today we're going to look at God provides an altar. We're going to look at number one, the moral law's design. Uh, I know we've talked a lot about the moral law, and probably these verses I've I've said them just in passing as I was preaching. I probably alluded to these aspects as were uh, as I was going through it. But Romans seven verse twelve. Uh, the moral law, and it's referring to here, well, the moral law, we're referring really to the, the Ten Commandments. We're referring to that foundational basis of morality that God gave Israel uh, to base all the other laws upon. And so, very important aspect, the moral law, because it, it's very uh, pertinent even for us today as God's people. We have to keep it before us. But in Romans 7, verse 12, it says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Amen. So it is good. It's beneficial. It's not something that's uh, just there as, uh, oh, you know, it's just there to show me I'm lost. And other than that, it's got no use. Well, no, when it, when it reveals the holiness of God, it's teaching you about him. And that's pretty useful. And then if you want to become like the Lord and live like him, you're going to bring those things into your life so that you won't uh, transgress the moral law. You become more like the Lord as well. But letter A, what, what is the design of the moral law? Letter A is exalt the Lord's goodness and holiness. Goodness and holiness. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, of course, this is going back to uh, Exodus 19 and the events of Exodus 19 and the reiterating of that by Moses. It said in verse 22 of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, it says, These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount of the midst of the fire of the cloud, of the thick darkness with, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. And it came to pass when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain did burn with fire. Must have been quite a sight, amen. That ye came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God hath showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man and he liveth. And so they had a real elevated, exalted view of God uh, to know that, you know, God actually talked to us and we lived. And so God isn't like a lot of people make God to be today where he, uh, you look at some of these movies that are out the shack and different things, we'll sit down at a coffee table and, you know, that is such heresy, guys. Don't watch movies like that. I mean, it's just so, such craziness what people are doing today and bringing down the view of our God before men. And so this is a, an accurate understanding of who God is. And so it goes on to say, Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. They were convinced, you keep talking, we're dead, you know. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speak? Out of the midst of the fire, as we have and lived. Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spake unto me, and the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. And so, uh, the people wanted Moses to be an a intermediate, an interceder between him, them, and God. They just thought, if we, you keep speaking to us directly, we're just going to simply die. 
And uh, you know what? It could have been that <laughs> they probably would have. And so he, he, he focused them towards that, that mediator between, and that was Moses. And that's why people today, they say, you know, if God would just write it in the clouds or write it in the stars, then I would believe it. I'm going to tell you something. You don't want to get that close to the Lord in your condition, <laughs> you know. And so just the fact that he gave you an intermediate uh, medium for you to read and to understand about him in, in, in spite of, or in, in, in uh, place of seeing him personally is a mercy to the lost. And so he gave us his word. They can believe it by faith. And then one day they'll be able to face him face to face and not die. Amen. And so the law is good. The law is holy. It shows us the position God should have in our lives and that how he is free from all defilement shows us how high and exalted he is, how much far above mankind and the fear that we ought to have for him and that law. And I think that's probably the, the big thing that's happening today is people are trying to bring down that fear of the Lord. They, they don't think that's a healthy thing to fear God. But we know that's where all wisdom begins. It begins with the fear of the Lord. You know, we were talking about this the other day. And I said, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning point. If you don't have that, you really can't go any further. Anybody that's not dealing with sin or concerned about sin or transgression or where the boundaries are in their life is a person that really hasn't started their walk with God. You know, but that's not where God wants to leave you in fear. He wants you to uh, move to the next level of, of relationship, and that is a love relationship. That's why he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so you need fear. The, the example I think of is, um, here we have in, in uh, Alberta, um, what do you call them again? Those things that uh, are written on stones, that, what is that thing you... Hoodoo. That's what, is that what it is? I was going to say that. Is that hoodoo? Does nobody know this? <laughs> Am I the only stupid one here? No. <laughs> Are they hoodoos? Okay, my wife is saying yes. Okay. And so basically those things, you look at them, and I get this picture of, you know, the ones you have in Arizona, the ones you have, you know, close to the Grand Canyon, place like that, they, they go up like hundreds of meters. And you think about the edge of that. You being on top of that flat part, and you think about the edge of these hoodoos. And I don't know about you, but I would want to know where the edge is because I don't want to fall off. I don't want to be blind about that. And so the Bible tells us this in Proverbs. It says that there is strong confidence in the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord isn't made to make you cower and be scared of your own shadow. That's not what it's about. In fact, the fear of the Lord is to build confidence. See, because God is very specific in the things that he says. You don't have to sit there and wonder, I wonder what God's going to do if this happens. Is he okay with this? Is he not okay? Well, he tells you very clearly what he's okay with and what he's not okay with. He also tells you what's going to happen if you transgress. And so you know all of that. So if you know all of that, you know where the boundaries are, you know what's going to happen if you fall off the boundaries. Well, then you can have strong confidence to stay away from that boundary. And so the fear of the Lord, that's how the fear of the Lord becomes the beginning of wisdom. The first step is to stay away from sin and transgression. And then as we're sitting in the middle of this hoodoo, well away from the boundaries, and I'm not saying walking two feet from the boundaries is sin, but sometimes it's just smart for you 
to stay further away from the edge. Because <laughs> some people, they like to play that. They got this, you know, uh, what do you call these guys that are out there always looking for that high, you know, and they want to be right close to the edge and they'll sit on that edge. And I wouldn't be the one sitting on the edge. I'd be just happy to sit in the middle there and take pictures from that perspective, hold it up, you know. <laughs> but I'm not going to sit on the edge. You hear too many people doing that and then falling off, <laughs> you know. And so we know where the boundaries are. And so we've got to be careful about that. That's where wisdom begins. That's where we begin to apply knowledge to our life. And after that, that's when the love comes in. To think about a God that cares so much that he's going to take care of me and not let me uh, fall into things unknowingly. He let me know where that boundary was. Why? Because he cares about me. And most people don't think that way. They think, oh, God's just trying to keep me. Well, that's Genesis 3 mentality. Oh, the Lord doth know the moment you eat thereof, you're going to be like him. So God's keeping me from something. God's keeping me from having fun things in my life. You know what I mean? And once you get past all of that and start realizing that's a stinking lie and you realize that actually he's doing this for you because he loves you and he wants to keep you safe, if you can get past that and get to that type of mentality, then a love relationship can begin. Amen? And that's why many people, they start in a law-based mentality and they're always scared of the edges, but they never go further into a love relationship with God. And that doesn't motivate them to continue to obey the commands of God. Because you know, everything God said is just going to bless my home, bless my life, keep me safe, keep me from harm, and all these things. And stop playing games with God that way, <laughs> you know? We've got to realize that God put these things in the scripture. These principles are real. They're not for you to nitpick which one I'm going to believe or which one not. They're all there. And if you fear God, you're going to say, you know what? I know it's going to be hard for me to implement this principle in my home or in my church or whatever it is. But you know what? I'm going to have to do it because I want to stay safe. I want to protect the people. I want to protect my kids, whatever it is. That's the fear of the Lord. Because <laughs> if I don't, this is the consequence, you see. And so fearing the Lord is, is proper. And, and so the law is good. The law is holy. The law shows us these boundaries. And never are we to look at the law as just simply something that, oh, that's for Israel, and so let's not think about it anymore. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things for Israel that you don't necessarily have to, you know, abide by uh, and so forth, especially ceremonial law and, of course, civil law. I mean, what can you do? Um, our country is what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the moral law is always relevant always relevant and i don't care if the government legalizes every transgression on that page it still is wrong still is wrong we have to continue and say you know that is sin and teach our kids that because sometimes they get the mentality well it's not against the law <laughs> well <laughs> okay why don't we call our prime minister and he can guide your life let's call this cabinet and they can become the, pe the person you go to for advice Man, wouldn't that be something, <laughs> you know? Should I, should I live or die? I think you ought to die. Euthanasia. Should I save this baby or kill it? Oh, you might as well kill it. And we'll give you the money to do it, you know? That's the kind of world we live in. So just because it's illegal, 
does not make it right. Amen. So we have God's law that keeps our feet to the fire that way. So letter B, the next design is to expose Israel's sinfulness. So the first thing is, just got a couple points here I just wanted to point out. Just number one, it was added because of transgressions. So the law was added because of transgressions. And so in Galatians 3.19 it says, Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of the of mediator. So as long as there's sin, God has to be specific about transgression and about boundaries. If there was no sin, we wouldn't need the Ten Commandments. We would just live that way. It would be automatic. It would be natural, right? But it's not natural for us now. It's unnatural to follow morality the way God laid it out. So he had to give us the law, and it was added because of sinfulness, because of the transgressions of men. Number two, it instructs concerning right and wrong. So Romans 7, 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in oldness of letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. So really, uh, I didn't even know what sin was until the commandment came. Now in us, we know there's, there's a, a conscience God gave us, and if we're honest with ourselves, we'll know kind of what's right and wrong. We know not to murder. We know not to commit adultery. We know all these things. But it doesn't take long when we, live, when we allow ourselves to become the end of that law that those things become less and less uh, intrusive. <laughs> you know, They become a more, more uh, natural part of our life. And that's why we've got to keep the Word of God before us because it's going to constantly challenge you and push that boundary to the place that it needs to be. If you'd be out of church, and you know this to be true, you, you go out of church for a year, and you'll be sitting there, boy, I never used to do things like this. I never used to you know, make these decisions. And I'm doing things that I thought I said I'd never do. <laughs> you know, That's just the way it is when you pull yourself away from that reminder of the law of the Word of God. You know? But here it's hard to do that, unless you... Unless you uh, want to live apart from the law but that's when you get mad at the preacher <laughs> you know <laughs> so many times you know you're battling this and i'm preaching these and i'm pushing that boundary and you're trying to push back well i don't like the boundary there preacher i want it over here where it feels better for me but we'll just the church will keep pushing back and say no this is where it has to be you know and that's where you got to make a decision you know, what are you going to do with your life? Are you going to live by the scripture or by your own, your own degree of, uh, of justice, whatever that is, your own degree of law. And that's where your conscience can become defiled. That's what happens. It uh, used to be more pure. It's like a window, and the window gets muddy, you know. And uh, if you don't wash that off, you're going to continue to think, oh, that's not so bad. And, well, I know I used to think that, but, you know, now... <laughs> I find a lot of people that get disgruntled in church, the convictions they have in church, they end up leaving them. Why is that? I don't think necessarily because it was only the preacher's or the church's conviction. I really think sometimes 
It was their conviction. But what happens is bitterness comes in, and the Bible says that bitterness defiles many. And so your conscience becomes defiled. And so those things that used to be a, uh, a hammered-down conviction in your life, when you get disgruntled or bitter, you drop those things. I can't tell you how many people I've seen leave church, all of a sudden they're dressing like, wow, you never would have thought. But now that principle of modesty just went right out the door. But you know why? Because that's what represents that church, and we're going to show them. <laughs> well, no, you're not showing us anything except your sinfulness. Uh, it's not going to change my mind <laughs> just because you don't want to follow God, you know. I don't know what goes, gets into our heads, but, I mean, when sin gets in there, we really don't make a lot of sense. But that's how the devil works. You give him that inch, and he'll keep pushing and keep pushing and you'll lose those convictions little by little, and your window will become more dirty, more dirty, more dirty, until finally it's like, oh, I don't believe there's anything wrong with that. I don't know why I thought that back then, <laughs> you know. Well, you need a good washing, good washing, a good purging. And uh, I think if a person gets real and repents and comes before the Lord, the Lord will begin to wash that mud away, and then, wow. And then also I need to repent more <laughs> because I'm seeing more, you know. But that's, that's a good thing. And so, um, where was I here? It instructs. And so, number three, it heightened sensitivity to sin. And this has a lot to do with the conscience as well. In Romans seven twelve, it says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just and good, was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So he's saying this law that is reviving death in me, because that's what it does. It takes you away from this la di mentality that somehow I'm going to be okay. And that's why people don't like that aspect. When you go to them and you start explaining you're a sinner and taking the Bible and showing how you can know you're a sinner they get offended at that because what it's doing, it's reviving sin in them. It's exposing sin and it's raising and sensitizing their, their perspective of sin. And a lot of people don't like that because the Bible says this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And those that want to be free, they're going to go towards the light. When you talk about it, they're going to say, yes, tell me more about that because they know that's the key to freedom. You know, but those that love their sin are going to shut you down. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear. I don't know if you uh, read the article I had last week on the Wednesday night by David uh, Wood, the soul winning article. And he said, that's why we got to have Bible memorized. Because some people will say, you can't read that book in here, <laughs> but you can sure, <laughs> you know, just tell them. And there's a lot of verses you can memorize and, and it can be the word of God hitting their heart and you don't even have to open the book amen but i'll tell you something they've already got their mind trained oh no i don't want to hear what's in there but they don't understand that the light is coming at them and exposing as you're actually talking to them quoting scripture to them amen that's why you got to be careful with all your little arguments and your own little ideas and the best thing you can do is just quote scripture just use bible and just get bible in there and you know, make sure they get some very simplistic verses that they can, the Holy Ghost can just use and as a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Amen. 
Because you're not winning anybody. It's, God's got to win them. He's got to draw them. Amen? And so, so it's to expose Israel's sinfulness and selfishness. Each law shows a part of man's selfishness. So every part, especially of the last six, you look at all those, like honoring your parents and murder and adultery and coveting and false witness, those are all you putting yourself first. It's, it, it's the epitome of selfishness. That's what that is. When I kill somebody because I want to live or I want to get at them or I'm avenging something or I'm mad, that's, wow. You know, you, you see some of these people going to the courts and they killed this person and it was over something no, that was nothing. <laughs> and they're sitting there now they're going to spend a lifetime in jail <laughs> or even death penalty. You know, like what in the world? That selfishness is so powerful and it steals so much from you, you know? And so the law was given to expose that selfishness. So we t- tend to think in our flesh that we are okay. Um, a verse that I use many times is, you know, every man proclaimeth his own goodness. That means the first thing we do is when somebody talks to us, we want to tell people how good we are, not how bad we are, <laughs> you know. And it, very rarely will you have a person being honest about their state before God in your presence. They will always try to lift themselves up a little bit to make them look better than they really are. So every man will proclaim his own goodness, the Bible says. And you've got to be careful of that. And that's why God says, you know, I need to expose this stuff. There's none good. No, not one. We've got to realize if anything good's going to come out of our life, it's simply through submission to what the Bible says. The only good act or work that I've ever done has been in obedience to Scripture. And so it doesn't matter if I think it was good. It doesn't matter if I think, well, this is a moral decision. It really doesn't matter unless it was Bible. It has no reward. It has no blessing. In fact, it was probably sin. And yet I called it good, (laughs) you know. And so we have to live by the scripture, live by what God says. The law uh, still works today, but now we have a more stringent standard given by Christ. It now applies to the heart as well as our actions. It has always been the heart that God has wanted. You know, uh, the Ten Commandments have to do with all their actions. So they were saying, hey, we'll, we're going to do what you asked us to do. I'll stop doing this and I'll stop doing that. And Jesus comes on the scene. Now you're going to stop thinking wrong. Whoa. <laughs> so before I could still think wrong, as long as I didn't act on it, I'd still be obeying the Mosaic Law. <laughs> So people that say obeying the Mosaic law will get you to heaven, they're missing something there. God doesn't just look at your actions, he looks at your heart. And so, have you hated your brother? The Bible says that's murder. Have you lusted in your heart? That's adultery. And so he goes far deeper and becomes more stringent with Christ. But then he also gives you the ability with grace to control your thinking and to not think on these things and to... Deal with your anger and deal with your bitterness and all these things. When before, how could you? You know, without the Holy Spirit's power, it's just impossible, you know? That's why there had to be so much civil law given, you know, to justify all these things. But the Bible talks about in, in Galatians chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it says, it talks about love, joy, peace, meekness, temperance, and it says, and against such, there is no law. There's no law. That means... If I'm living 
within that fruit of the Spirit, there is no law that guides my life. That's heaven on earth, <laughs> you know, because in heaven there's no law. <laughs> That's completely living by the Spirit of God, walking in the Spirit. And so love, joy, peace, and all those things are really a fulfillment of all, of all the law. Meekness, long-suffering, faith, you know. There's no law. So the law comes. Why does law come? Because of sin. See, preacher, you got too many policies. We're Christians. We don't need policies. No. <laughs> if you're spirit-filled Christians, we don't need policy. Do you understand that? It's only those that aren't spirit-filled that we need the policies for. And so if we have a policy and it bugs you and you're mad about it, you're just proving to yourself you're not walking in the Spirit. <laughs> Amen? That's the way it is. And you're the one that the law was written for. Now for me, I want to get away from being the one the law was written for. I don't want to even think about the policies because I want to live 24-7 within that righteous parameter of my life. But some people, they're always pushing it. You know what? I've dealt with people like that my whole ministry experience. Always pushing at the edge. That's because they were not spirit-filled believers. It's very simple. Amen? That's why many of you have been here for how long? And I'm still not a dictator. But I'll tell you when I'll become one. When you start walking in the flesh. That's when I'm going to, oh, he's a dictator. All you're doing is exposing the fact that you're not walking in the Spirit. Because if I could do something, create a law that hinders your walking in the Spirit, that'd be a pretty big talent I'd have. <laughs> the Bible says there is no such thing. There's no such thing. The only laws that we can have is going to affect your flesh. It's going to affect the thing in you that wants to do the wrong thing. And so the people that react and the people that are complaining behind the scenes, people come pick at you and say, you know, you know, just stop being so foolish and thinking that's normal. That's severely abnormal. That is a flesh-controlled believer. And you just got to say, you know what? I really don't find it a problem because I walk with God. Amen? That's what you aim at. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I understand all of us will get close to that edge. We'll, we'll get to a point in our life, we become weak, maybe haven't been reading our Bibles, not praying. Maybe somebody did something and we're, we're going through this thing. <laughs> all I'm saying is don't be going through that thing too long and don't go too far down that road because it's going to take you away from the things of God. Be careful because all it's doing, and this is what you have to do, you have to look at yourself, you know what, all I'm doing is, is showing myself I'm really not walking with God. Wow. <laughs> That's something, if you tell them that in that moment, they get real mad at you. <laughs> I love God. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And the Bible says, and they will not be grievous unto you. They're not going to be, oh, why do I always have to do that? Amen? There's no law that will affect you that way you see number two the moral laws demands letter a is perfection so the moral law doesn't give 
credence for half obedience, you know. It, it holds a holy and just standard. And that has to be met. And so James 2.8, it says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the, law, the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So you can be very proud that you're not breaking all of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, I've had people like that before, you're witnessing to them. Well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Two out of ten is not bad. Or, you know what, you show them that verse. If you've done one, it's just like you've done them all. Whoa, <laughs> you know. So if I've coveted, I'm a murderer in the Lord's eyes as far as a transgressor, you know. So you cannot say you're obedient to the law while you break even the least of the commandments. And that's why even Jesus said, you know, think not I'm come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill it, you know. Not one jot or tittle shall pass away till all be fulfilled. Amen. Then he goes on to say, um, oh, I'm trying to remember this. I think I have it here somewhere. Maybe I don't. But he goes on to talk about how that don't you think that there will not be a punishment or something for those that break even the least commandments and teach others to? The least. So you think of that little, little law that, oh, this is kind of a pain. You say, oh, that doesn't matter. And you tell, oh, that doesn't matter. You don't have to follow that. The Bible says you will not be held guiltless. Even the least of the commandments, if you disobey them, and then you teach others to do the same thing. Wow. Because he says, I've come to fulfill, not break. <laughs> Amen. So we have to keep a very uh, wholesome look at the law. It has to be fulfilled. And you say, well, preacher, we're not going to be perfect. I know. But the thing is this. That doesn't mean you say now, well, then let's just throw it all out. That means you keep focusing on doing it all right. Keep doing it all right. Amen? Because this whole thing about, oh, we're not perfect anyway, so whatever, let's embrace our sinfulness. <laughs> you know, that's Gnosticism, by the way. And so, anyways, uh, so perfection, the law requires that or demands that. The law demands prosecution. So the law will demand a uh, penalty. In Genesis 2.17, we have the right from the beginning, <clears throat> but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's where the first boundary was set by God. Um, got several verses there. Um, Romans 3.19. Now we know what things soever the law say, that say to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world is going to become guilty. Um, <clears throat> Romans 7, 9. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is a mysterious verse. It really is. But it's very interesting because here I am living my life not really knowing what is right and what is wrong. That's why you can have a person. I remember there was this uh, lady in, in Kenora that 
when I met her, I thought she was about 16 years old, but she had had a, um, a fever, scarlet fever, when she was five years old. And she never once, after that, she never grew past a five-year-old mentality. So I thought she was 16 when I saw her in the hospital, and she wasn't doing very well. And her mother told her, no, she's 55. <laughs> 55. I, it just blew me right out of the water because her skin was not a wrinkle on her. Five-year-old mentality. See, not knowing right and wrong, not making decisions of sin. <clears throat> See, the age of accountability in man, what happens is you grow older, and that's why around seven, eight years old many times, sometimes earlier, depends how uh, frequent you've had the scripture given to you. That's why many times Christian families, uh, their children get saved at four or five years old. That's because they've had the Bible read to them and Bible time and they, they get it sooner, you know. And so what happens is the law revives sin. The law revives it and it brings death. So that's why a child that dies not understanding before the age of accountability goes straight into the arms of Jesus. That's why David said, you know, my, my son that died will not come to me, but I will go to him. It's a telltale verse there, because David was a prophet. Amen? And so I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's why when we're dealing with Sunday school kids, this is a very interesting dynamic, because when you ask your Sunday school kids that are three, four, five, are you sinners? Oh, no. Because all they're thinking about, if I admit to this, my dad's going to whoop me or something. <laughs> That's all they really think about. They really don't see their sinfulness. You know, but as you get older in the older Sunday school ages, all of a sudden they start realizing, you know, I have done, I am doing wrong, and 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 it's a real problem. So that commandment has now revived that in them. I'm guilty. See, that's when you reach that age of accountability. You see, and once you make that make that decision, once you see it, you will make a decision one way or the other, whichever way you go. So you can have eight, nine-year-old kids <clears throat> choosing darkness. All depending who's influencing them, right? And I've seen it happen. Young kids just turn from, turn wicked. You know, and you see that today. Look at the wickedness that's going on today. And so we keep the word of God before our kids. We keep the answer before the kids. We keep the Lord and the Lord Jesus before them because when they get to that age of understanding, you want them to turn immediately to Christ. So these people that say, oh, no, they can't get saved till way older. <laughs> they can get saved when they understand that they are a sinner. And they understand there's a penalty for that sin. That's when they can get saved. And when they understand that, you want to be there with the gospel. And you want them to turn to Christ. Well, they don't understand the atonement. They, don't <laughs> they understand enough to be saved. In fact, you have to come to to. Christ as a little child. Like I was telling someone this week, me and Paul were witnessing, and I was saying, you know, the problem is you don't get saved soon enough. He was talking about children and being, being, uh, being able to be manipulated whatever way. I said, well, the Lord made us that way. He made us innocent and pure at first, so we will receive. A child that is shown the gospel at a young age will receive Jesus. 
unless there's an influence that comes in to turn them away from it. And that's where parents and influences and clubs and schools and all these things have a part of what direction that child's going to go. So you have to make sure you bring that influence strong in their life, amen? And don't let anybody convince you otherwise. And so anyways, um, Romans 8 verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Uh, letter C is propitiation. I'm going to get through this real quick. Um, and so what it needs is, it needs a point of punishment. It needs to enact its wrath on sin. And that's what we call a propitiation. A propitiation is the place of that <clears throat> judgment. And that's why Jesus Christ became that for us. He became that propitiation. The, the word mercy seat means propitiation in the Greek. And so that's that place of meeting. That's that place where the decision's being made. And so it doesn't have to be made on all of us. We don't become the propitiation individually. There's one propitiation. And that's Jesus Christ. He does that for us. Amen. And that's why they went into the Ark of the Covenant and they sprinkled blood on that mercy seat to show how you can access the presence of God through the blood of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I'm not going to get into a lot of this. We've gone through some of this in the past. Um, Good verses there. Please look at that. Number four, the moral law deferred. What a disaster it would be <clears throat> if God would have acted on Israel's deficiency of the demands of the law that day. So they, they gave the right answer. <laughs> I mean, they said, yes, all that you say, we are going to do it. And the Lord says, I like your attitude. But the problem is you've already failed. You've already blown it. You know, I'm so glad that in that moment when he gave them the moral standard and the moral law, and they said, hey, we're going to do it, that he didn't say, yeah, right, and just wipe them out. Because he could have, legally, he could have wiped them out because they were all guilty of even the very admission of their own mouth that day. <laughs> you know, we will do it. Well, they didn't do it. <laughs> and, and Jesus made that very clear in the New Testament. None of you kept it. None of your fathers kept it. You all broke it, you know. And so the Lord knew that. And that's why with the, um, the law, the moral law, and the civil law, which dealt with governmental things, came what's called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was made because God knew they couldn't keep the moral law. So you cannot keep this. It requires death. It requires propitiation. It requires perfection. You don't have what it takes. And so I'm going to provide that for you right off the start. And so that's what the picture of all those sacrifices were. It's called the ceremonial law. And that's why in, in, in Colossians, it talks about how that the ceremonial law, those statutes that were against us, were nailed to the cross. So basically all of these laws that we're going to look at, even the tabernacle, everything that required death, every sacrifice, all of it was pulled together and when Jesus came, it was all nailed to the cross and said, okay, all of that was referring to this. All of it. Going right back to Abel, the first, first sacrifice made of the lamb. That's all nailed to the cross. Everything, you know. And that shows us that he provided us a way 
of redemption. At the same time, he was showing us the perfection of his holiness because he knew there's no way in our sin nature that we're going to be able to keep this. But you know what his whole thing was? I want to be with you. That's why he did it. (laughs) So if he's just a God of, I'm just going to make sure I deal with it, well, he would have just killed us. But there's more to God than just, I'm going to deal with sin. And that's why there's got to be more to us than I just want to deal with sin. We've got to say, okay, sin is not permitted. But at the same time, God wants fellowship. He says, I want to be among you. And that's the whole message of the tabernacle. He gave them that because he says, this is going to show you how much I want to be with you. And all those things were how they approached the presence of God. Because that's what he wanted. And so that'll be a great study for us. Anyways, um, let's see, where would I want to go? Exodus 20, verse 18, it says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people saw it. They were moved and stood far off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that is fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. So there, that's the purpose of the fear of the Lord right there. So if you want to underline that verse, this is why we're supposed to fear God, that we sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with, with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make you gods of gold, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and, thou, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps, unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. So Israel was content to follow the leadership of Moses, but did not, did not really desire the fellowship of the Lord. See, that's the whole thing with this. They saw the law, they said, okay, I want to be blessed, but they didn't catch fellowship at this point. You see, they didn't say, oh, I want to be with God so bad. In fact, they were saying, keep him away from us, please. <laughs> keep him away. We, he's too great for us, you know. How do I get that God to come close to me? How do I get close to him? That's the whole dilemma here in this whole mountain scene. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, it tells you that there's another mount that God has called Mount Zion, one that we're able to approach through what Christ did for us. Amen. And so that, that's the contrast he wants us to see here. So they've entered into a covenant that they would break because they didn't have the heart to desire God. Hebrews said they were afraid because they could not endure and carry the burden of what was commanded. Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them, and with their children forever. That's God's heart for them. So letter A, the law's perfection fulfilled through his son. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 6, news right off the bat, in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, 
And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Not my righteousness, but the Lord our righteousness. Do you have this in your blanks, by the way? Everything's good so far? Did I mess you up at all? Do you have the right? <laughs> okay, sometimes I mess things up. Oh, here's that passage of Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, to heaven and earth shall pass. One jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it translates to reward. It's God's reward to you when you stand upon the law of God and teach it to do right and to be righteous. Amen. There's going to be a lot of Christians today that are going to be very surprised when they meet the Lord and they, they brought down the moral standard so low in the churches and their personal lives and they're going to man they're going to be least doesn't mean you're going to be lost i'd rather be least than lost amen but you will be least and i I don't think we want that it says for i say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven and so the pharisees were very righteous looking when it came to the law, even the, even the Apostle Paul said, as touching the law, blameless. He was a man that held the righteousness of the law blamelessly. And yet the Bible tells us that we have to be greater than that if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. How many of us could say we've kept the law blameless? You know? See, that's why it has to be redirected to Christ. It has to be deferred to Him. He's the one that has to fulfill it because none of us are going to be able to go in. For a person to think they're going to heaven by what you can do is probably the most prideful thing you could possibly say because <laughs> there's no way one of us can go to heaven by anything we have done, by any works of righteousness because no matter how blameless you are, your righteousness has to exceed that. And that's what Christ did. Amen. Um, Jesus, first. Peter 2, 21, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Can you imagine living your whole life and not saying something that wasn't right? <laughs> you know, just never saying something deceptively or saying something critically or gossiping or uh, whatever. Wouldn't that be wonderful to go to the end of your life and know you've never done that? All of us have already failed. <laughs> and all of us here, you've already failed. And if you think you haven't, I think you need to be saved. Amen. <laughs> Hebrews 7.26 says, For such an high priest became us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. First John 2.1, My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. So what about this relationship? This is where people have a problem when it comes to a works religion. They'll say, if you teach somebody that their salvation is free, then they'll walk around thinking they have the license to sin. Well, we know from the scripture that that's not the mind of God because he wrote us right here that ye sin not. And so he doesn't want us to sin. 
But one thing you need to understand here, if you do sin, that doesn't cost you your salvation because you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it's kind of like this. Uh, the devil goes up to the Father and says, hey, that Jeff Reason down there, this is what he did. And then the Father says, okay, let me take a look. And he'll turn and he'll see his son. You look, no, it looks pretty good to me. Do you understand that? Do you understand that there's no accusation that the devil can make to the father about me without the father looking at his son and saying, no, he's perfect. Judicially perfect. But yet at the same time, it says that you sin not. So how does that work? Well, Jesus at the same point, he's facing the father. And then what he does is he looks back at you and he says, now let me help you with this. Let me help you, you know, more reflect who I am. But he's still standing there. Do you understand that? It doesn't mean that you forfeit becoming like Christ and forfeit trying to be righteous and holy before the Lord. But all you know is that has nothing to... You, why you're doing it isn't for your salvation. Why you're doing it is to become like Jesus Christ and to please him. Amen? But he's between us and God. He's between us and the Father. He's between us and judgment. Everything was deferred to him, you see. So that law no longer condemns you because it condemned him. And in condemnation, he came up squeaky clean. <laughs> the resurrection proved that. Thou wilt not allow or suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So basically, the holy one Death couldn't get a hold of him, even though he gave himself to death. When he gave himself to it, death tried to, I'm going to keep you down here, and had nothing to grab onto. And so Jesus just rose right up. And so what that does is prove to you that he is the perfect son of God, and now he stands between you and the father. And the father looks at you through his son. And then the Son looks at you through the Spirit. So let me work on that heart of yours there. But he wants you to operate not in a state of fear of going to hell. He wants you to operate in a state of love and liberty, choosing freely to follow after him. Not scared you're going to drop off into the pit. <laughs> you understand that? It's a wonderful illustration for us, folks. And so... The Lord deferred perfection to his son. The Lord defers judgment through an altar. And he said that right here. Immediately he says, get an altar. <laughs> See, this is the propitiation. This is, takes care of that, that wrath that needs to come down. And so with all of this law and all this, he's saying, you still need an altar down there. And that's pointing towards the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we saw that in Scripture, Noah built an altar to the Lord. We know that Abraham built an altar, even Moses earlier on in chapter 17 built an altar called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. But here the application of that altar becomes very clear in association with the law. And so he gave the law, he says, now I'm going to tell you exactly what that altar means. This is going to take all of that prosecution <laughs> that is supposed to be placed upon you and it's going to become your propitiation for your transgression. Amen? 
And that's why the ceremonial law was introduced at that time. And so Hebrews 7.27 says, Who needeth not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's because the high priest would always have to first kill a bull for himself, for his family, and then he'd have to go and do the sacrifices for the people. But Jesus didn't have to do that. No sacrifice for himself because he was the perfect high priest. And it says, and then for the people's, this he did once when he offered up himself. So he became not only the offerer of the sin sacrifice, but he became the sin sacrifice itself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh a son who is consecrated forevermore. So he's going to continually be, and he is our high priest. He is the one that has gone in the temple before us. So there's no more need of high priests. Any of the high priests they have today is basically uh, a null and void job. Jesus Christ is now consecrated in that position. So the altar is a picture of judgment against sin, but more specifically, it's a symbol of the cross of Christ that will bear the judgment of all sin. Offerings of animals were to be offered upon this altar, picturing Christ's death, the demand of the law. Um, God does not give a law that will bring death and leave it there. God makes a way to escape judgment, but it will take a death pictured by the animals, a substitutionary sacrifice. And that's why even 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taking you but such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will suffer you to be, not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So that's talking about your daily temptations, but that is the mentality of God. He is always looking for a way to help you escape. Amen. So number one, an altar not polluted by man's labor. He says, don't go and take those stones and make them all pretty-like. Don't put your tool on it. Amen. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God made the plan. It's not your plan. Even the cross wasn't man's plan. It was God's plan. And you'll see that in the tabernacle, even the placement of the furniture itself shows you the picture of the cross thousands of years before it was even implemented, you know. And so it was God's plan. Uh, we, we don't take a part of that. Number two, an altar not approached by man's flesh. That's why he says, Thou shalt not go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Um, no flesh should glory in his presence. First Corinthians one twenty nine. And it says, For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it is all God. That altar is all what God is doing for you. No tool touches it. No flesh upon it. This is completely what I'm doing for you and giving my life for you so that you can have the righteousness of my son on you. Amen. So very, very good stuff. And a good principle there. Later on, he, he made the priests uh, wear breeches, breeches, made them wear pants so they would not expose their nakedness before that throne of folk. And, and what a great principles you can learn from that. I always tell uh, our folks that, you know, a lot of people, they're always pushing the limits of their modesty. And the Bible gives us very definite uh, lines of where nakedness is. 
this is where nakedness begins, this up. So you're walking around showing this part of your leg, you're actually naked. And that's what God told, told us. So it wasn't just women, it was actually men too, because the, the priests were men. So he gave them clothes to cover their legs so it wouldn't be exposed on the altar. <laughs> and not only that, we get this mentality that, oh yeah, but you know, but when I do this, when I do that, well, that's what he was talking about. He says, not just in the normal sense of modesty, but you've got to catch it even in situations that, that you know you're going to be in. So if you're climbing up the steps, you're sitting down, you're doing this, you're doing that, the principle of modesty is right across the board, you see. So we can't just pretend that I need to be modest when I'm standing straight in one position. God says, I'm concerned about your modesty in every position you have before men, before people. So it's a great principle for us. And I think that's God's principle. I mean, I don't think it's a Baptist principle. I think the Lord came up with that. Amen. He's showing us what that nakedness means. He's showing us what nakedness is. And so let's not do that. Amen. Let's, let's honor what the Lord said. And he's the one that provided the solution. He says, wear clothes. <laughs> uh, duh. I just don't know how to fix this. <laughs> wear clothes. Ladies, long flowing garments. That's what the word apparel means. The word apparel means to let down, not pull up. You understand that? Apparel means flowing down. So you don't expose the shape of your body. Ladies, the only one that should see that is your husband. <laughs> the world should not. And men, shame on you for not standing up and saying, hey, that's for me, not for them. You understand that? That's where we got to step in because we are the leaders around here, but we're the last people to say anything. You know? It's true. <laughs> Principle. I mean, we're going to go by principle or just by feeling here. Well, I just think, well, your thinker is probably off. Let's go to the Bible. Pull these principles together, and you're going to see all these things kind of flow out of it. You know, oh, maybe I do need to adjust. Maybe I do need to do things a little better. Amen? Anyways, go from the altar to uh, dress standards. Amen? i got to get it in wherever I can, especially in the summertime.